Welcome to Between the Lines, a monthly podcast that explores books for a better world, brought to you by the Institute of Development Studies. Good books have the ability to change our perspective on the world. In this month's episode of Between the Lines, IDS professor Robert Chambers talks about his book, Can We Know Better? Reflections for Development. Drawing on almost 60 years of relentless questioning of social processes and power relations, and standing up for those often left behind, Robert argues that to do better, we need to know better. He also explains how having been a lousy manager led him to lead with love. Interviewing Robert is friend and colleague Tessa Lewin. I'm here with with Robert Chambers. He's a research associate at the Institute of Development Studies, and he's been here since 1969, which is quite impressive. And he tells me that prior to being at IDS, he was a failed manager of rural development. (laughs) And this fact is quite important in, I think, understanding the arguments in in your book, Robert. And um, I imagine is a motivating factor behind behind much of your writing. Um, Do you want to talk a bit about your failure as a manager? (laughs) I'd be very happy. And I think it's important because I'm not being at all holier than thou in writing this this book. Um, I was um, a district officer in Kenya uh, just before independence. Thrilling time to be there. Um, But I was working among pastoral people and my approach was very top-down. I was very ignorant. I had a good degree and I thought I was the bee's knees. And that was a disability that I never recognized at the time. Mm. And later, then I was a, 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 a trainer of Kenyans to take over. And then after, after that, um, I became a researcher. And when I was doing the research with a very good friend who's now passed on, but uh, John Morris, we did research on the same settlement scheme in Kenya. And at one point he said to me, you know, Robert, Whenever there's any difference of opinion, you always take the side of the management. And I've never forgotten that. It went very deep. Huh. And this, this guy, John Morris, he did a study of women on the scheme. And the reality of women was very different from what was perceived by the management of the scheme. And that was an education for me. Want to win a signed copy of this book? Share this episode on Twitter using hashtag IDS between the lines. There are six chapters in the book um, and I'm sure Robert will correct me on this or we'll discuss it in more detail later. But my reading of it is that the first chapters are, um, well, they're titled Error and Myth, Biases and Blind Spots and Lenses and Lock-ins. And very broadly, they're about what we've done wrong as a development profession. And the second half of the book is about um, the different criteria that we need and redefining how, how we look at development. Is that a fair characterization, Robert? Yes, it's, it's fair. <laughs> the first three chapters are about um, getting things wrong or missing things or mislearning mm-hmm. or not learning well. And the last three chapters are about trying to explore how how we can do better. And perhaps I can start by asking you about, I felt 
when I was reading the book, I felt that it was bits of it were kind of well. You make it, you talk about the brain and the left brain and the right brain, and and this distinction between how you approach things and how you approach people, and that 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 they they're very different. Um, and I felt, particularly in the second half of the book, that you were kind of quite defensive in in a in that your audience was one that you expected to have to persuade not to be rational <laughs> um, and and to kind of see things differently and be more open to to creativity to to complexity to chaos to a different way of approaching development and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about about these these two paradigms that you that kind of run through the book, really. Yes, well, they're, they're fairly fundamental. A left hemisphere of the brain, which connects with the right hand, which is to do with things, which links in with predictability, controllability, linear processes, statistics, um, a lot that goes with the scientific method. And the right hemisphere of the brain links with the left hand, which is more creative, more flexible, more adaptive, much much involved with complexity and with unpredictability and with adapting continuously and learning continuously um, in situations which are un- unfolding but are not as controllable as the things on the things paradigm. Maybe I should say what I mean by paradigm because I, 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 um, I've got my own definition of paradigm and I've never... D- found anybody who shares it <laughs> although I, I hope I very much hope there are people who share it but my definition of paradigm is there are six things which are all interlinked and which can either cluster on the thing side or they can cluster on the people side the unpredictable the complexity side one is the concepts the second one is is values and principles the third one is methods and processes. The fourth is roles, behaviours, attitudes. The fifth is relationships. And in the middle of all this, linked with all of them, is, is mindsets, which is to do with how we perceive things and how we frame things and how we think, which, of course, varies um, between people and between context. So what I'm suggesting is that there's a cluster of these on the side of uh, things, physical side. Mm-hmm. And some people talk in, 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 in the sciences, and particularly psychology, about physics and, and economics, about physics envy. That's to say that <laughs> other professions, they all feel slightly um, inferior unless they can count things and be precise according to that paradigm. And this is one of the troubles with our time and this is quite beyond development as well, is that that side, the scientific side, has taken over and um, colonised areas of learning which it should not have colonised and which need reclaiming, where the complexity and unpredictability are the norm. Can we go back to the discussion about, about audience and who you had in mind? I guess, who do you write for generally? Because you've written a number of books. Mm. I try to write reasonably accessibly so that I I try not to use jargon. But when I do use jargon, I 
to find it at, at the end of the book. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've been doing that with the, all recent books, yeah. having definitions. And I think that's important, and I wish more people would do it. Yeah. And the audience is very general. I, I listed it at the beginning, it's particularly people who would call themselves professionals. Mm. And these can be people working in aid agencies, or they can be academics, um, they can be um, consultants, they can be people in a whole range of different disciplines. I'm not focusing only on, um, you know, with a narrow searchlight pointing mm. at mm. One, one group. Although one could argue that your audience is your former self. <laughs> <laughs> that's the, that's, uh, that's a thought the which, failed which manager of her old I shall have to brood over later. Um, can we talk a bit about how how you conceptualize development now? Because that's also a kind of a long um, theme throughout the book. Is this kind of m massive move from um, imagining that development is is a kind of um, based in the developing world? And, and how that how that's changed not only within development but also within your own practice and yes but I my definition of development is a, a, a bit of an escape it's quote good change unquote <laughs> so the question is then what's good which throws one back on values and whose values mm. and what changes is significant but the reason for having that definition is to throw people back and say effectively define it for yourself and how does that work given predisposition to bias and yes. error and i mean it's a bit of a recursive yes well if you, in um, the last chapter and one or two other points particularly in the chapter four which is about rigor for complexity i talk about and here's a jargon word reflexivity mm. and what i mean by reflexivity is um, holding a mirror up to yourself and the way in which you learn what you see, what you don't see, how you categorize things, what your values are, and how this affects your whole mindset. Mm. So I think reflexivity is very, very important. Mm. You, you seem always, Robert, very um, kind of relentlessly positive <laughs> um, yes. and open and enthusiastic, despite being very critical and yeah i wonder what it is that that drives you really <laughs> and and has that changed i don't know whether it's changed it's it's you might call it I, I, it's a rather pretentious word to say that it's matured but it's it's something which has developed i have a strong tendency to look for win-win solutions and i think that academic critics in particular miss a lot of tricks because they reward one another. Academics tend to reward one another for being critical. Mm. Um, there are development institutions in the UK, I won't name them, but which tend to have a very critical culture. Mm. And students who come out feel a bit disillusioned by the, the, the fact that there isn't more that's positive. Mm. But there are very, very um, strong win-wins which are, which are possible. For instance, if you take um, just a to pick one out of the air, participatory statistics, which is one of the approaches that I advocate in the book. With participatory statistics, everybody wins because uh, the people who generate the statistics learn about their reality. And 
um, the people who um, are involved from outside the community or whoever the people are who are taking part, they learn, but they learn much better because the reality and the categories and the indicators and so on, which are being used, are those of the people themselves. So it's their reality. So this is a really strong win-win. But it's not normal professionalism at all, anywhere, in any discipline. And it's very, very disappointing that it hasn't been taken on more because we've known about it for over 20 years. We've known about its extraordinary power for over 20 years, but it simply doesn't get picked up. And one of the things which I still don't fully understand, but I think we need to learn about, is why. What is it that makes academics, researchers, so conservative in terms of approaches and methods? Do you think that shifted at all? And, and do you have any theories as to why, why it might be? Um, it's... It's, um, it, it has shifted a bit, but not very much. And what happens, and there's an example um, quoted in the book um, about participatory impact analysis. Uh, that's in Chapter 4. There's an exam example there, which was very, very cost-effective. And it was funded by the um, Gates Foundation and by EFAD, and it was a very, very difficult piece of evaluation. In many sites, many interventions, many impacts, all that. But it was done in a participatory way. And of the budget, which came from those two organizations, a whole third of that budget went on developing the methodology. And having developed it, then it was relatively straightforward, but it was very participatory all the way through. So everybody gained. But it gained because the funding agencies were prepared to wait, to be patient, and to invest a lot of money up front in developing the approach. I think that's the way for the future. But it depends on the funding agencies. You, you talk in the book about, about time frames and timescales and that being a, a significant um, decider on the success of of um, a development project and, and, and the push towards kind of tighter, shorter um, mm. delivery mm. timeframes. I wonder if you could say a bit more about that. I th think there are two sides to this. Um, one is um, that it, with a lot of interventions, it takes really quite a long time before there's any impact that can be measured. And the other side of it is that there are situations in which what is needed is very, very rapid learning and feedback. And this is why one of the criteria of rigor for complexity is rapid feedback. It's timeliness. Timeliness is not a criterion of rigor on the thing side. Mm -hmm. It should be one of the criteria for rigor on the people side. So an agility kind of... Yeah, I, I, I thought I thought about this a lot actually in, in the, the way we are so so much about log frames and and, and measurement and mm. and restrictions that you, you, you can't um, you can't make agile decisions, you can't be responsive or opportunistic. Mm. And the, the spaces to do that have have closed up so much. You're listening to Between the Lines, brought to you by the Institute of Development Studies.
I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the first the first chapter um, of the book on yes, error and myth. I'd be delighted to because it, it contains some things which are a common sense but substantiated with evidence which I think have not been put together properly before so that we've not been fully aware of them. And to take some examples, very often when something doesn't work well, it gets swept under the carpet. When there are top-down targets and people are regarded well if they achieve those targets, the reporting tends to be um, inaccurate and exaggerated and blown up. There's evidence of, of these. There's a tendency to, to marginalize heresies of any sort. Heresies are not always right, but I've given some examples where heresies have been right and they've been swept under the carpet. Such and as? So, well, I mean, the, the system of rice intensification, which has been adopted now by millions of farmers with considerable increases in, in rice production, uh, in, in, in the main rice-producing countries, which was rubbished by the International Rice Research Institute for years and denied. And, and there were erudite, refereed journal articles which rubbished it, but it worked. And one of the reasons there was that the person promoting it, Norman Uphoff, is a political scientist. Oh, no, you can't, you can't let a political scientist muscle in on our territory in this sort of way. Um, but but it, was, it was successful. Other things are repetition. Once an error is um, repeated, particularly statistics, they get repeated and they get embedded and they get believed. And nowadays, an even worse thing is the way in which um, PowerPoint perpetuates error. I... I give an example in, in, the, in the book of a PowerPoint which has gone on being used for, for about 10 years after the research on which it was based has been, has been um, shown to be really very, very inadequate mm. and misleading. Mm. So repetition and university teachers and people like myself running workshops, if we're repeating the same thing several times, we come to believe it. And I cite in the book how um, I've discovered that something that I was, some numbers that I was giving um, were simply not true. I was appalled I, to I discover to, this. Yeah. I mean, I guess this is why um, when, you, when you are doing your doctorate, people are so insistent that you have to go back to the original text because it's such a common error, right? It's these <laughs> yes. kind of Chinese whispers by academia that yes. you, you take a statistic or, or some little factoid yes. and, it, and then yes. it, it kind of perpetuates itself and... And, 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 and I mean, there are, there are examples which I quote in the book about the fallibility of memory. Mm. We, we reinvent our past. We reinvent the past to present ourselves in a good light. I, I know I do this, mm. and it's upset other people. <laughs> and they've told me, which has been very good for me. Uh, that, that goes on. Other research, the Hawthorne effect, the famous Hawthorne effect that we tend to quote that if you're observing people, then they'll go on performing better and better because you're simply because you're taking notice of them. I mean, I oversimplify, but that's more or less. It's, 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 um, it's been exposed um, in a book, which I, again I cite, um, as being unfounded. In fact, 
the findings of the actual research were pretty much the opposite. And at the end of of, of this chapter, you, you you have, as with all the other chapters, you have some action points, as in mm. how, how can we overcome these mm. difficult aspects of, yes. our, of our personality? Yes. And, and could you talk a little bit about about how how you envisage these insights being being practically useful i guess my hope is that people will look at this i call this an agenda mm-hmm. which in its in its original um, latin sense of things that ought to be done um, so it's a checklist of questions which um, any reader and myself anybody mm-hmm. can go through and think about and be reflexive about it's trying to go beyond just learning. I mean, how, how, can, how can we know better? But it's actually, how can we do better? How can we do better at knowing? And how can doing better at knowing mean that we do better when we're using, um, in the practical world, what we have learned? Can you um, give some other examples? You talked about participatory statistics. Um, you also talk about immersions. Yes. Yes, yes, certainly. I mean, um, as a a positive example, I guess, of um, development practice. Yes. Well, Um, um, this fits in with um, the reality check approach, which has been spreading. Um, And the idea here is that if you, um, as an outsider or as a researcher, if you stay in a community with a family and uh, to some extent, become a part of that family you 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 do do things with the family but you actually stay there and you sleep there and you chat with people instead of having a, a questionnaire um, you you just have conversations and you walk around and you observe things this is a very very effective antidote to the biases of the normal sort of visit that we indulge in and this has been systematized in the reality check approach, which someone called DJUP um, has pioneered um, and been used in, in many countries now. Well, at least at least eight countries have, have used this and different organizations. It strikes me that this kind of very open, agile approach that you're advocating relies a lot on trust. And and that's part of the problem, right? That this where there's these competitive bidding and it, there's a, there's mm. a kind of alienation between donors and practitioners, if you like. I'm very glad um, you you raised this because yeah. trust is is a is a is a word which um, you you don't hear very much. At least you don't hear it on the donor side mm. if we're thinking about aid agencies or in, or indeed um, on the government side. Mm. In governments in any country. It's not a word that's used very much, and yet it's very, very important. And if you, people are going to do their best, they have to be trusted, but they also have to be given flexibility. And obviously, it, 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 you have to have proper accounting. Sure. Um, you have to avoid corruption. But there are many, many people who are capable of doing better than they are doing if they were only trusted and given resources and told to get on with it, with a lot of reporting back, of course, and a lot of learning, 
but I think they would learn better and do better if they were trusted. Which leads quite nicely into another word that that is in the closure of your book in a way, which is love, and, and is another one that's not very often found in the development setting and certainly not on the on the donor side. And I wonder if you could just talk about about how you end. Well, one, one of the most astonishing things which I've learnt in um, recent years is an organisation called Kyocera, which is a high-tech company which was founded on the basis of love and, and empathy and with a motto which was about respecting people um, within the organisation. It's been highly successful with high-tech activities, over 200 internationally. Very successful. Kyocera, K-Y-O-C-E-R-A. You can Google for it and you can find it. You can find it all. But uh, um, Martin Luther King is very good on this. So let me read you something that he said. And this is about power and love. He said, Power without love is reckless and abusive. And love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power, at its best, is love implementing the demands of justice, and justice, at its best, is power correcting everything that stands against love. It's a very um, moving and, I think, insightful and important statement from Martin Luther King. And so, yes, I end with the theme of love, because I think... This is the way forward. It's to do with how we behave, how we relate to one another, and about process. So much that's in this book is about process um, and about open-endedness and empathy and understanding other people, reflexivity. All of these characteristics, these they hang together and they point the finger much more than we've had it pointed in the past towards the personal dimension in development. And I'm using development to cover all countries now. The personal dimension has been neglected compared with learning, with academic qualifications. We need universities, we need institutions, training institutions, research institutions, which pay much more attention to the personal, to personal reflexivity, to personal actions and behaviour, and to love. Thanks for listening. Between the Lines is a monthly podcast brought to you by the Institute of Development Studies. To find out more, please visit ids.ac.uk.